Are you uh, a Knicks fan? Well, I'm a New Jersey Nets fan. Oh. What is that? Get out. (laughs) Last night, Josh texted us an article to Donovan Mitchell, and he goes, I'm told it's a done deal. So, <laughs> so I said, "Who's telling you these things?" I want, I want a name. How old is Justin? My yeah, my my thirteen year old son. Justin, is, he goes, it's <laughs> Justin, his thirteen year old son. He said it's a lock. Who who are yeah? Hey man, the thirteen lock year olds the they're they're on the Twitterverse and they're on the lock TikTok the and they're they know things before well, we ever K, know. So KD is gonna stay. It's gonna stay, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's gonna be a nice relationship now. Yeah, it'll be good. Things will be cordial. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be no, cord- but it's good because like Ben Simmons and Kyrie, they're all very stable. They'll make it work. It's gonna be a great locker room. Yeah. Uh, very cordial environment. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Why do you think he's going to stay? Because there was nothing no better out there. There's no, there no buyers. Right. Nobody wants anything to do with that. You got Knicks fans? Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, interesting. That's interesting. So I got this really nice note from Art. So I went on. Uh, I went on halftime today, and Leesman's out in Jackson Hole for the big Fed thing. So when is that? Tomorrow. And I, I didn't mean to, but I was just like, I'm a little bit off message here, but like this doesn't really matter that much, and nobody wants to hear that. So, but Art sent me a, a funny email about Art Cashin about uh, the origin of Jackson Hole, how basically it started in 1982, where they gathered the whole Kansas City Fed there, because uh, I hate to do this. What? I just Googled it and it says first held in Missouri in 1978. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't know, <laughs> but the first time they did it in Jackson Hole was 82. It's, I'm telling you. And the reason why is that Paul Volcker uh, wanted to be near fly fishing. Uh, it's like, the, it's wow. like the origin of the event. No? Wait, where did you say it was? The, the first time they did it in Jackson Hole was 1982 because uh. they, they couldn't get Paul Volcker to commit to going if it wasn't near – Fly fishing. That's all true. That's a true story. Oh, I didn't know this. Uh, Jackson Hole, they said that's a shorthand for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City's annual economic policy symposium. Correct. So, I don't know that. But I'm, t- I'm just telling, I'm just reading, this is the journal. Don't. This is just the Wall Street Journal. First <laughs> held in Missouri in 1978. Are you, are you hard of hearing? I'm telling you. Are you I hard of reading? I'm telling you the first year they did it in Jackson <laughs> Hole and not in Missouri was 1982. Does that compute? Oh my God, dude, Duncan! I didn't have my coffee today. Honestly, keep your hand on the on the mute button today. Put my mic on. All right. Uh, All right. So just one more time. It was 1978. I understand that the meeting started in 1978. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, But that's true story. Oh, did you see the Chinese the the news out of the the China today? No, was it good? That they're not U.S. China near deal to allow audit inspection of New York listed Chinese companies. Yeah, you know it's a big the, deal. You know what the deal is? They're going to make the auditors fly to Beijing to inspect the company's records. I swear on my life. I actually read past that. We're going to have to go get them like in uh, Dark Knight. No, they physically we don't to go want them back. They physically don't Same want way, the information to leave <laughs> Same the country. Way. Christian Bale will be on a plane next week. No, but imagine you work for imagine you work for like one of the big auditing firms, and they're like. That shit they used to email you, <laughs> you go to China. No big deal. No big deal. Are they going to make senior management do it? Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. Somehow I doubt it. There's some 31-year-old who's going to be there with his phone under surveillance. Um, all right, we clicking it up? What? I feel like I'm leaning very hard. Yeah, you don't need to be Okay. Put my mic on! 
right, John, let's, let's go. go. Let's go. It's a long time. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Duncan, did you know that in the year 2022, in a year when the IPO market dried up, in a year where the U.S. stock market is down, Masterworks has sold six paintings with an average net return of 29% to investors. Unfortunately, none of my seven paintings have sold, but they're still, uh, they're still the back half of the year, right? It's always hope. I think Michael's art portfolio is the second half story. On top of that, Duncan... Masterworks portfolio has generated a net annualized dollar weight appreciation of 15.3% since 2019, September 2019. To learn more, visit masterworks.art slash compound. 59. We did 59 of these already. All right. Time flies when you're having fun. Oh my God. All right. Here's how we're going to start. First of all, happy birthday to Duncan. When is your actual birthday? Saturday. My 27th. God, what do you what do you have planned? Uh, I might run a five k. Going for a birthday? Really? Not for my birthday, but it happens to be on my. You birthday. just might actually. Where is the five k being held? Uh, Prospect Park. Okay, you could do that. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, it's close. Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, are you known for speed or distance, like endurance? Uh, neither. You're not. All right. But you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. All right, it's a great. Way to, I'm. I'm probably gonna do the same thing on my birthday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would be a one k. Uh, Devon Drew is here. Devon is the CEO of DFD Partners. You are a SaaS distribution platform for asset managers and RIAs. And prior to DFD, 16 years at all sorts of gigantic asset managers, Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, Alger, Vanguard. Which was your favorite? What was your favorite uh, work experience of of all of those uh, uh, admittedly large, well-known firms? So I would have to say my favorite was uh, one that you didn't mention, American American Century Investments. You don't, you don't want to put it in there. Um, All right. it, it, it was it was it was definitely in there. It was, must must have been over, right. oversight, but um, definitely had a great time at American Century. Spent five years there. Uh, still remain very close with everyone. Um, our sales meetings were just you know were just great times, and uh, you know really felt like you know really felt like we were we were a family over there. It's pretty easy to sell American Century. It's just Ken Hebner all day, right? So with American Century, the easiest selling point is it sounds like American funds. So right. whenever time, so whenever time a client's Someone like, oh yeah, American funds, growth of America, right, right. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let me just uh, write down that we have a new ticker actually. <laughs> and uh, so yes, yeah, so I was the easy, yeah. Definitely, I, definitely. Can I tell you something messed up? That's really true though. The guys at uh, Oppenheimer, the brokerage firm, used to uh, use Oppenheimer funds, which is completely unrelated. Oppenheimer funds was uh, CIBC, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was a Canadian company, <laughs> but the guys at Oppenheimer would sell Oppenheimer funds because it was like easy. It was easy to sell. Yeah, yeah, I mean that that goes on. D- different time, right? No doubt. When <laughs> when were you? Uh, what was your last stop out of, out of those firms? Was it Vanguard? So Vanguard was my was my last stop. Yes. Okay. All right. Awesome. So we're gonna talk about this platform you've built, which. As soon as I saw it, I totally got it, and I see what the opportunity is, and I think people are really going to be into it. Um, but this week, I think we we have to kind of start with some of the economic data that we're getting. Um, 
Jackson Hole is like like uh, is start. I guess starts tomorrow. They will live stream Powell's presentation. It's from Missouri. From uh, <laughs> from from Jackson Hole. Believe it or not. So uh, what are we, Mike? What are we? Uh, what are we looking at here? All right, not to lead off. You know, I'm I'm sorry. I started the show with the, on a, on a sour note, but it's what it is. We got the economy softening, and we've got some data that's coming out this week too. Confirm that. Uh, we got S&P Global flash U.S. composite PMI, which is a fancy word for just saying like private sector type stuff. Um, so S&P wrote, U.S. private sector firms signaled a sharper fall in business activity during August. Uh, the decrease in output was the fastest seen since May 2020. The rate of contraction also outpaced anything recorded outside of the initial pandemic outbreak since the series began nearly 13 years ago. Material shortages, delivery delays, hikes in interest rates, and strong inflationary pressures all served to dampen customer demand. Um, If there is one bright spot in the report, I'm not sure there's a bright spot, but firms increased their selling prices at the softest pace in 18 months. You could say that's because inflation is peaking, maybe demand is slowing, a combination of things, but not particularly rosy. And again, this is not like a Yahoo Finance article. This is like straight from S&P. They're not, they don't do hyperbole. Right. It's not clickbait. So so there's a chart. So I mean, it's a it's it's a downturn that is not as steep as uh, the pandemic lockdown, obviously, but it also is not resolved as quickly. I guess my my perspective. What are your what are your what are your thoughts about like what we're living through right now and and some of the stuff that you're hearing and seeing? Well, I always try to follow the money. So when I look at VC activity in Q2, you know, it, it declined significantly from if you look from peak levels reported in Q4 2021 and, and Q1. And we expect activity to remain relatively volatile in the current environment. So from a, you know, I know we talk from a private markets perspective, it's like the feedback that not only myself, but also larger, uh, larger VCs are saying is it's going to be a bumpy road, right? Yeah, and they're buckled up for it. Right. They're not yeah, like sure. we're gonna we're gonna uh, whistle past the graveyard. Uh, Ford yeah, yeah. just cut three thousand jobs. Yeah, maybe specific yeah. to like you know uh, ICE and uh, electric, but still. If you're not talking about a downturn that's like more of a classical downturn than a pandemic lockdown or a great financial crisis, but just like a straight up regular recession, which I think Wall Street has the odds at fifty fifty at this point in the next twelve months, what does that do? in the asset management industry, how much how much do people really change what they're doing? Because we had Terranova on the show, Joe Terranova uh, on the show last week, and he was saying like, okay, take this data, take that data, okay, great, now what? Now what do you do with it? So I know you talk to a lot of asset managers. What are you hearing from like what people's plans are to adjust for what seems pretty likely to be coming? Yeah, so at my last organization, you know, was a small uh, $9 trillion asset manager. Yeah. Um, called uh, uh, <laughs> Vanguard. Um, you know, it, it's funny. So even if you look at the volatility uh, during the pandemic, they actually reported the least amount of volatility among trading amongst clients. Yeah. Right. So that just goes to show um, with asset managers I'm talking to are, are, are saying buy and hold, right? Like right. remember your overall thesis of why you're investing in our small cap growth or or in our in our large cap value, right? right? So and if your time horizon is indicative of, you know, 10 to 12 years from now, these are very solid companies that are will be able to st- stand the test of time. So stay um, you know, so stay and 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 uh and hold the ground. When you when you think about how little outflows there were from Vanguard uh 2 years ago when the when all hell was breaking loose, to me that's like one of the most shocking things that happened that really nobody did anything. And like even anecdotally, 
Most of the stories I heard from advisors were clients calling in and saying, I want to give you more money. Right. You must have heard a lot of a lot of stories like that. So I ended up um, from my position uh, raising the, the most money ever um, during, during 2020, right? For the first time in my career, my phone was actually ringing and it wasn't my mother. Inbound. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Inbound saying like, Hey, listen, we, you know, we have this client, we want to, you know, we want to utilize this. And that's what happens when, if there's a volatility, um, there's a high correlation of going to, uh, managers that have, you know, that, that reputation for, um, you know, being conservative in nature. Right. And, and you've seen that this year, you've seen that last year, um, which makes, you know, which makes my, my, you know, which makes my platform that much more desirable to be able to kind of break in. What, so what mold. do you think was behind that willingness to stick it out? And, and will that willingness still be here in the next recession? Like, what do you, do you think, uh, investors have gotten smarter? I think the access for information is, is there. Um, not only the access for information, but folks like like yourselves being able to educate the the incline and 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 making it into a you know a graphs and charts and be able to show well this time isn't different right this yeah. we've had you know we've had X amount of bear markets over the past fifty years and we've always come out of that come out of it stronger so stay the course buy what you know stick to your investment thesis to why you originally that invested. That seems to be getting through though and maybe the answer is more financial advisors are building financial plans and so when they're interacting with clients in those crucial moments there's some rhyme and reason behind why they're saying stick it out it's not just like well, our chief strategist thinks the market's about to bounce here. That's not the conversation. Right. It's more goals-based, right? So when you're having that, that goals-based, like, okay, well, when you, you know, when you came to me and you said you have a, you know, you want to retire in 25 years and your goals was X, Y, and Z. Did let's that not, change or not? Right. Right, exactly. I guess exactly. the pushback, to, and I don't disagree with anything that you guys just said. The pushback would be that that, that contraction happened so quickly. The bottom happened in 24 days and people are paralyzed. It happened too fast to do anything. Same with the bounce. Right. And it wasn't prolonged and it was exogenous. And everybody understood that not that stocks would recover as quickly as they did. I certainly did not think they would, but it was not an economic recession. And I think right now, so many Americans like really feel the pinch. And so I don't know if that like the average American is the average investor class, but I feel like people really feel like things are getting worse. Let's, let's look at, uh, let's look at the Jolts report. So this is job openings. Um, so this was the big stat that the, the, the bulls would trot out. 11 he, million or whatever They would keep saying there's 11 million open jobs. There's only 5 million people unemployed. There's two job jobs available for every job seeker. And I guess to some extent it was true that, we, you know, we've had a very tight labor market. But that story is like imminently going to come apart. I don't think most people believe the 11 million uh, job openings. And what is – all right. So the latest report, they fell by 1.1 million between March and June. So we only get this quarterly, this this data? I think it's monthly. It is. All right. But this 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 could collapse very quickly. I'm not saying it will, but like the these job openings, you know, I don't want to say that they were fake job openings, but I feel like this number could, could come down very quickly. I so I don't I don't really believe the data because of work from home. Right. You could have like 50 ads running saying that you have job openings. Two people respond and you close all 50. Mm-hmm. Were they ever, did they ever really exist? Right. So. And think, think about all, all the people that, you know, during, during the pandemic were like, you know, we're just not going to work anymore. We're fine. And all of a sudden, fast yeah. forward to 2022, it's like, okay, well, you know, let's, you know, let's change that up. Let's actually, you know, get not one job, but four jobs, right? Yeah. And, and, and all, like you said, all the part-time work and, and the different uh, platforms like Upwork, right, where, you know, you don't have to you know, really re- report kind of what you're doing and have freelance, you know, five freelance jobs at a, at a time. Did you he- read anything about this in the last week or two? Everyone's talking about quiet quitting. 
Did what's you read that? anything about that? You know what I, that is? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, reading something about Nicole, that. Nicole, yeah. what's quiet quitting? They just pretend they're still working there, and but they stop working. Yeah, That's, pretty much. So no two weeks, like like, like office space. I, I'm not gonna be here. To, yeah, exactly. I won't be here tomorrow. <laughs> no, no, they they don't even say that. They like just don't do the work. Oh, so or, mentally, or they just so start, start doing significantly less. They just like scale it back, and they're barely doing enough to stay. Yeah, there. like they're doing enough so that you don't fire them, but they're like not acting as though they have a job. All right, how how many members of our firm are currently quiet quitting, and can you identify them, please? It couldn't be any more than five or six. Okay, that that wouldn't be terrible. That's about ten percent. I think I feel like a, it's so good attrition rate. The yeah. data is clearly like some of the data is clearly worsening. New new and existing home sales are falling off a cliff, but I think Josh and I spoke about this the other day. I think a better way to frame this, like mentally, uh, I think it's healthier to frame this is not that things are getting so much worse, but things were so abnormally skewed to the upside that things are just getting more normal. And because we're coming off such high numbers, the cha- the, the year-over-year change, quarter-over-quarter change is like very bad. But in reality, it's like not that, that bad. We have down home prices though for the first time in three years. So that's like a, it's it's like no longer slowing anymore. Yeah, now my point negative. is you could say, okay, let's just say the home prices fall 10%. Okay, fine. Meaning home prices are only up 30% over the last you know, 18 months. Right. Like, yeah, they're, they're going to fall from the peak. Obviously, that is going to happen. That is ha- That did happen, but it doesn't mean that things are so bad. Uh, Peloton, most obvious, least shocking earnings miss of the quarter. Let uh, me ask you this then. So yeah. they announced a partnership with Amazon yesterday. I didn't read the details. They're going to be available to be sold on Amazon. Great. Does that mean that you don't get people to Listen, install the bike? Doesn't matter. The point is, the, the that's like I announce a partnership with Amazon because I'm going to make French lip bracelets and sell them on <laughs> AW, using AWS. But, but Peloton was up 20% yesterday and took it all back today. Is the market that dumb? Yes, because people don't <laughs> read past the headline. You know what I'm saying? But people didn't know the earnings was the next day. I, I guess I guess people people get people are short the stock they get squeezed the stock makes a big run up and if you're unsophisticated you look at that and say wow people are bullish in Peloton I think I saw that they're not going to be reporting earnings anymore is that possible <laughs> <laughs> or, no that can't be possible they're, they're like they're that. registered they're, 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 they're not giving guidance they're not giving guidance all right go back private uh, stock is in an eighty eight percent drawdown from its high which is uh, pretty bad um, free cash flow is. Negative two point six billion, and they only added four thousand subs this quarter, and they're projecting flat subs for next quarter. Yeah, I think we are, we we added more subs than Peloton did. I think so. <laughs> this all this all, I mean to me this all this has to go negative. Uh, how shocked are you surprised? Are you surprised Wait, by this? What, at has all or ne- no? what has to go negative? Subs. I think their subs will not be flat next quarter. Oh. I think they'll. I think they're now going to have attrition. Because people are out fully outside, fully, yeah. fully, fully outside. Nice day, but I don't know where you go from a from a product innovation standpoint. I mean, they came out with the the new version of the bike, which was a tougher one to even hit hit PRs. They came out with the tread, like they came out with the tracking system. Yeah, like what do you what do you do next? I mean, the only thing they could probably do next is maybe a rowing machine or like get a partnership like SoulCycle and like an Equinox. No, you just need another pandemic. What's the big deal? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really (laughs) it. Uh, Revenue for the fourth quarter is 30% below last year. What turns that around? Uh, So now it's 679 million. And here's the, here's the two big problems. They burned through 412 million in cash last quarter, which is down from 650 million. So they're burning less. <laughs> they're burning less. But they have 1.25 billion left and a and a 500 million dollar credit line. But worse than that, subscription revenue is now bigger than equipment sales. 
So you would think that would be good. The problem is it's all tiny. Subscription revenue for the quarter, uh, $383 million for the quarter. So it'll be over a billion in subscription revenue for the year. Um, equipment sales are falling so fast, though, that you're not going to get the subscriber growth. So, uh, But now subscription is bigger than equipment. Uh, and if they now get into net negative subs, then – Really, what are you gonna like? What are you gonna tell people? They're not gonna sell more of the of the bike because the used bike market is flooded. So I I don't know. To me, this was the least shocking of all the earnings reports. Um, but I think it's partly a Peloton story, partly an economic story. Anywhere you look, where someone's selling durable goods, right now they're starting to feel it. They're starting mm-hmm. to struggle. So uh, we talked about on Tuesday that unfortunately. For the S&P 500, goods are more important than services, even though in the economy, right. it's a services-based Service economy basic. at this point. So, all right. There is good news, though. There is good news. Give it to uh, me before I kill myself. Uh, <laughs> shipping rates. Remember, like, the Shanghai to Los Angeles? It was taking forever, and it costs the, – the cost went up, like, exponentially. That is crashing. Like, that is actually crashing, which is a good thing. Um, what actu- – what? But why is it crashing? Because things are getting normal. Because uh, demand is falling off. Well, all, no, I think a lot of supply chain issues are are fixing themselves. Maybe there's a combination of the two. But uh, profit margins for S&P 500 companies are at an all-time high. Uh, we got news today that GDP contracted less bad than was initially reported. They, they reported a 0.9% decline. It was actually 0.6% on the revision. One factor was an upward revision of, of consumer spending, which accounts for the bulk of economic output. One of the things that we keep talking about is that the economy is messy. Not every company is feeling the impact of all the different cross-currents together. Retailers are getting killed. Nordstrom was down 20% yesterday. Uh, they, they obviously got clocked by inventory, but then other companies, particularly hospitality, travel, consumers can't get enough of it. So I, 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 feel, like, uh, I feel like this is the moment, though, where it becomes really apparent that things have materially changed. Forget about like just people's sentiment. You're, you're now going into, um, I think, the first holiday season of the of the pandemic period, uh, right? Where sales conceivably could be like th- like last year, nobody was worried about sales. They were worried about uh, can, will the goods arrive on time? Right. So now I f- I don't know. Now I feel like it's different. What do you what do you see out there uh, this year versus last year? I mean, travel first and foremost. I mean, I've been living on a plane for the past year, yeah. and you know, I feel like I mean, when you, let's just call it United, right? I'm I'm Premier One K and used to. You know, get upgraded automatically. Now I'm at flying at a Norco. Premier One K. They let, they put you on before the pilot. <laughs> but now it's like now I'm 35th on the upgrade list, right? So I mean, right. like you're seeing. I feel like I feel like people are traveling a lot more. Um, you know, the airports are more packed than I've I've seen them. You know, granted, it's summertime, but still, like even even in quiet times, people are just just out and traveling more, spending you know spending more money. Hotels, you know, like I'm a I'm a last minute kind of guy, and I, and I go in and I'm like, oh. This hotel for this conference is actually booked. So let me stay, uh, you know, let me yeah, stay in the next that. city over, right? So yeah. um, even for like, you know, future proof, right? I mean, the- You got a room though? You good? I, I do. I, right, I, right. I, I I do. I'll be, you know, I'll be, you know, hopefully I, rolling out a cot next, you know, next right. to you. I have a, I have a, <laughs> all right. I have a, I have a secret, uh, I have a secret block of rooms we can open. We okay. can unlock it. See, it's all about who you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, so uh, getting back to like some positive news, initial jobless claims are coming off the lows, like abnormally low lows, lowest all time, I believe. Yeah, they're ticking up, but again, I think I would think like a better mental framework is just things getting more normal uh, is healthier than like things are getting bad. Yeah, th- uh, three and a half percent unemployment is not normal, 
and 2% unemployment among college graduates is not normal. It's not that you don't want people to have jobs. It's that if that's going to be the new normal labor market, then companies will not be able to hire. So, right, right. So like the normalization story is, is I think the, the silver lining. But so how, I mean, one of the biggest stories is housing, which is I think 18% of the economy, but psychologically it's a much, much, much bigger piece of the pie. Yeah. And the bid ask spread on housing is three miles wide, right? Because sellers feel like they could have gotten a price 12 months ago. That's much better than it was today. And buyers are like, well, first of all, mortgage rates, the economy is, everything is different. And so I think like transactions, not I think you just look at existing and new home sales. Transactions are just like freezing up. Yeah. But if you have to ask like, which way will this break? If, if existing sales have fallen to the point where the market is barely moving, prices won't stay. They'll drop. Like the market, it doesn't every market in the world clear eventually. So yeah, but if you're, if you're at a sub 4% mortgage, like you can't move depending on your financial situation, depending uh, on where interest, depending on where mortgage rates are. If mortgage rates go back to 6%. Yeah. Well, listen, you had two years to sell your house to pretty much anyone for any price. Right. So hard to, what's, what's a market like where, where, where you are? Well, I actually put my house on the market and it's, um, I'd write, you know, writing that inflection point where. Um, rates went up and prices started going down. So it's actually been on the market without one offer for 60 days. And okay. that's where, you know, two of my neighbors sold identical houses within days. You waited, right? you waited when, like six months too long. I, I, rated, uh, I rated like a couple months yeah. too long. But, you know, to that point, where do you go, right? Rent, you know, rental prices, you know, rental prices are up you know, 22% year over year. Yeah. Places like Miami and, and, and a lot of larger city, New York City. I should have got a place back here during pandemic when they were giving away for free. Yeah. Um, with that said, there's still an equilibrium, right? If you look at housing starts and people that need need houses, right? I mean, it's still, that's roughly about a, a, a million uh, in, in difference between the two. So it's like, you know, where, you know, where are you going to go? There's not I mean, enough houses. That's why it's hard to get two not, bears. There's not, there's not enough. There's I not enough houses. Yeah, it's, hard to get, right. it's hard to get two bears on housing prices. Yeah. Like, I think that the floor is very high because there's still way more people that want a house than people to sell that a house. That need a house. That need a house. You have, yeah. th- you have three months inventory nationally in the housing market. Yeah. You have... You have a demographic. That just shot up a little bit, but still. It's, fine. Yeah. So three to four months, like you have a demographic uh, boom of people that are home buying age. So I think they'll keep the market at some sort of equilibrium unless you tell me like mortgage rates are going to 9% or something, mm-hmm. which I don't think anyone thinks is like. I think like millennials are the ultimate relentless bid. Uh, yeah, because they're 37 and they're miserable. And they need to get, they need to like get so their- I'm not miserable, speak for yourself. 30, how old are you? 37. 37, yeah, that's what, that's where I was going with that. <laughs> uh, no, what you are you going to say next? They're bald? You have your house, you're good. Hey, well, <laughs> All right, would you give, uh, Devon, would you give Adam Newman money, the WeWork guy? Oh, man, that's 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 tough, man. That's tough. Especially as especially as a solo founder. From sounds like a I, no. you know, I, I I wouldn't burn through a ton of <laughs> ton of cash, ton of capital at at his uh at his last venture. Um, oh. and Dreesen just valued his company at a billion dollars yeah. for for a very similar in my mind concept than we work. But on the flip side, he's betting on millennials and Gen Zs living a nomadic lifestyle, right? And not wanting to get locked into, you know, these, you know, these leases paying exorbitant prices. We don't so. even know what the product is. What the, I don't even know what it is. Well, it's flow. There's a deck. There's a deck, right? There's so deck. <laughs> you have to assume Andreessen saw the deck. Okay. I think they're trolling. I, that's not my take. Somebody else. So, I, so somebody else. No, seriously. It's the largest that it's they've It's the largest had. investment that they've ever made. You ever don't think it's intentional? You don't think it's like a giant F you to the media? If you want Adam Newman, and you like, got to pay for Adam we're Newman. And we're founders first. Well, let's talk about what this really is. It's called Flow. We don't know what it is. I it's will, a community-driven lit. I will tell you what we know so far. It's a kibbutz. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you, Adam Newman's whole shtick is that he grew up on a kibbutz in Israel, which is like communal living. And it's like, like everybody shares the crops or whatever. And like they, they all pitch in and do different parts of what has to be done to make the community work. All right, what are you talking about? You really think this is a kibbutz? He, I'm telling you literally what he is saying. He is modeling this company. Stop. Just stop. What, why would I just stop? Literally it's stop. Truth. It's a billion dollar kibbutz. Uh, but is, yes. Andreessen's getting this as a, at a discount, right? Because if WeWork is, was valued at 50 billion. He still and- owns 10% of it. <laughs> yes. It's no, I swear to God. Okay. Listen to me. Like all the best ideas in Silicon Valley. This is Esquire. Details and explanations are scant. The homepage for Flow appears to borrow from Hun Culture's Live, Laugh, Love mantra with its own interpolation. Live life in flow, promising or threatening to arrive in 2023. So basically, uh, Michael, Adam Newman took the money out of WeWork before it collapsed or during the collapse. He bought $90 million worth of residences across New York and California. As of this year, he owns 4,000 affordable apartments all over the world, and he values that portfolio at a billion dollars. That's what Andreessen Horowitz is investing in. It's not an idea. It's 4,000 apartments. Um, so what? You're going to be able to like jump from one to the, the other? But the bet that they're making is that is that there's a subset of the population that's going to want that communal living, right? Yeah, so like that's, a dorm. That's, that's I look big- at it like a dorm, though. Like in college, like you're going to – like. He what Newman's uh, better. What what grown up wants to live in a dorm? <laughs> well, people that don't want to commit to year leases, right? So they're he's betting on that nomadic lifestyle of folks, the same folks that aren't going to go back to work and that are you know that are in New York City. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen here. Newman has long been a champion of this arm of his business, partly because of his time spent in a kibbutz in Israel when he was younger. The idea of co living in a commune type space, I would blow my brains out appealed to him. And uh, he was trying to do that with WeWork. So now he's going to do it with apartments. I don't It's. I don't think it's the worst idea ever. They, I really don't. They had a WeLive um, down, by, down by Wall Street. And I actually went there. A buddy of mine was living there and, and working out of there. And I'll be honest, it was kind of packed. Andreessen <laughs> says, quote, Many people will live in places far away from where they work, and many more will shift to a hybrid environment. For many of these people, increased screen time and reduced in-person interaction will cause challenges that are not just limited to work, such as alienation and loneliness. This is not a good path for anyone, and it needs to be addressed directly right now. What's the show on MTV? Um, The Real World. The the Real World. Yeah. That's what this is. Yeah, everybody doesn't want to live that way. That goes well. Uh, I that, bet that, that show goes for like six weeks and they'll want to kill each other at the I, end of it. Let me, let me, let me, let me say one thing. Uh, this doesn't have to work. It just has to be able to be sold to the public. You understand? The pub. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, I'm not buying it. Uh, I would say this. I feel bad for Adam. Adam was in the penalty box during this whole crypto NFT, uh, meme stock bubble. I think he would have crushed it. Like in that environment. I think that. I think that was a sad, it was a missed opportunity for him. WeWork almost came public in 2019 at $50 billion. So it came out instead as a SPAC. It's worth, it was worth 8 billion when it de-SPAC'd. Now it's worth 3 billion. That was the S1 to end all S1s. Oh yeah. The the world, like everyone went, business media went crazy. Yeah. uh, uh, Elevate your consciousness. What the hell are you talking about? 
But think about it. From from fifty billion valuation to three billion, what it's worth now, you could make the case that by pulling the deal, the sp- uh, the or by doing having this be a spac, the sponsors saved the public like forty five billion in losses. Because I think WeWork would have ended up worth three billion had it come public as a regular IPO. Come so there was a report and there was an article in Forbes. The headline is, WeWork co-founder Adam Newman's real estate startup sounds an awful lot like one he invested in two years ago. So here's the lead. This is pretty good. When staff at real estate startup Alfred arrived at work last Monday morning, they were surprised to discover that their largest investor, former WeWork CEO Adam Newman, appeared to have started a rival company and raised $350 million (laughs) to compete against them. Um, So he gave them $20 million at the start of the pandemic, and then he invested again. He had... Two board seats. He doesn't, he, the, the, no more board seats. But I read the article and there's actually, he actually did something good. So they were raising additional funds, this company, Alfred. And in some sort of the terms that there was a clause that if they raised more money, Adam Newman would have had warrants that converted that would have given him 51% of the company. <laughs> he didn't take them. Oh, that's so good of him. What, he's, so I, I'm not, we're not not calling him a hero, but he didn't take them. <laughs> but here's what I would say. As far as this goes, uh, isn't this competition? Is that is is that so so bad? Investing in a company and then and then doing something similar? How unethical is that? I'm just asking. I'm I not guess, sure. I feel very strongly. I guess it's been. I mean, it's been done before. People work at a company and then start a competitor. It's not like he he didn't invent doing that. It just everyone remembers that. The, does anyone remember why the IPO fell apart? You remember? Yeah, it was like, S one. Elevate your consciousness. Nope. All that nonsense. Incorrect. That was that was fine. They were pricing the deal. This literally fell apart two days before it was going public. We had a problem with the valuation, correct? No, worse. Details came out that he was double dealing. He was buying real estate and then leasing it back to WeWork. Think about that. Oh, and then, then it came out that he sold the the name We to, to the company for five Dude. million dollars. Or what is what is what name did well, he sell? Well, once the floodgates broke, he sold broke, the trademark. Mm-hmm. Once the floodgates yeah. broke, then all the stories. So started that was coming what did it. That was what did about it? like smoking blunts on private jets with employees and like th- then it became floodgate. But the the proximate reason why the IPO syndicate, the sponsors, were like, okay, we're not doing this, was because details started to emerge about him literally. Buying real estate, like jumping yes. ahead of WeWork and you, then leasing it back to them. Do you think, though, had the S one had the S one been not completely f-ing insane, would those details have come out? Maybe not. Mm. Probably not, because the S one was so nuts that the entire business world for seventy two hours or however long it was, it was nothing but that S one. But I still think it was going forward. I, I really think like people were like, wait, 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 what is he doing? No, my, my point is, had the S1 not been so crazy, would they have uncovered that detail? Oh, maybe not. Yeah, You're that's right. a good point. Yeah. That definitely sent reporters on like a yeah. on like a mission to yeah. be like, wait, was what's he, going on? Was he buying the real estate from a like offshore holding company or? No, but just the point that like- He was buying it and selling it to them though, right? He, he was jumping in the middle. He they was were, front running his own company. What right. in the world? So WeWork is about to, I'm making shit up. WeWork is about to- lease six floors in a building owned by Steve Ross, related companies. And then he jumps in the middle. He does the lease or he buys the building and then he goes and leases it to WeWork himself personally through an LLC. Anyway, this guy's good at making money. This guy's good at making money. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Right. So he does, the, the company doesn't have to make money. I'm sorry. Listen, they just have I, to I will reserve judgment because I'm genuinely curious to see what this is. But if it's what you're describing, 
I just told you it's college forever. Wouldn't you want college <laughs> life forever? I'm, I'm short. You down for college I'm, forever? I'm, not, I'm mentally short that that company. Man, I, I personally wouldn't, but you you'd be into it. I would not be into it. Come on, but I, 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 one I, month a year, one month short term lease. So a what, week. What's the demo, what's the demographics for this? You, me? No, it's not you. No, it's twenty seven year old, not a thirty seven year old. I, if I had to guess, right? It's somebody that's ready to be away from their parents. It's Nicole. Is it you? No, you're too No, but young there for is this. communal living in Murray Hill. It's Anna Delvey, like right? Yeah. Oh, it's Anna Delvey. No, you're right. There is communal living in every city. There's that one neighborhood where it's all kids that is just there like the college. wheel? But I, but I guess it, I, I guess the question is how do they scale it? Do they have that network, that community all over the world? Kind of like a Soho, a Soho house for yeah. 25-year-olds. If you Well, so how about this? If you go visit your friend who's in one of these and it's dope, like you're, you're like one floor is billiards, the floor below that, everyone's watching like a, a football game on a, on a flat screen. One floor below that, there's an open bar. You might be like, why do I live in this stupid, boring apartment building? I don't know my neighbors. I'm lonely. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a boyfriend. Like – Maybe this is what I actually really want. So that's the way that we work. The original we work. Wait, did, did he say open bar? Open bar. I don't know. You might be. Uh, I just covered my short. Yeah. So <laughs> not. Are you long yet? <laughs> I'll say more. All right. Anyway, so no taker. You're not in. You're out. I'm out. Even if Andreessen personally like shot you an email, he was like, "Hey, you want in? You might be in." I need I more detail. We need more details. We need more details. <laughs> I think we need to know more. I think we need to live in one for a few weeks. All right. Uh, crypto. So th- this we're not crypto price up or down. This idea that Wall Street is starting to embrace the technology and start to actually build things on the blockchain, I think is really interesting. Paul Vigna did this thing at the Journal this week about Goldman and JP Morgan starting to process some trades using the same technology that's behind cryptocurrency markets. Isn't this the thing that we originally heard in 2017? That was going to happen. That sparked. I don't remember the, hearing that. The original bull market. You don't remember everyone that being like, I don't like Bitcoin, but I like blockchain. You don't uh, remember that whole uh, thing? Yeah. That was the thing. That sounds like it. That sounds like it's where it's going right now. Here, let me. Didn't Vanguard do something with blockchain technology? Vanguard is there. They were bullish on blockchain, but. To settle com- trades or something, completely right? Completely against the actual you know, cryptocurrency. Yeah. So they're just like JP Morgan and they're all, they're all trying to figure out, you know, how to you know, how to build, um, implement this technology into, you know. Into they all like Playboy practice. for the articles. Uh, Goldman Sachs is already trading some bonds and other debt securities for clients on blockchain-based networks such as Ethereum. And the bank is building its own blockchain-based tra- trading platform. JP Morgan has a platform in place already called Onyx. Yeah. So I, I, guess, I guess this is like what people have been talking about all along. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just feel like if you look at, and the important to note is that blockchain as a digital, as a, as a distributed ledger technology, and having the advantages of transparency and traceability and scalability, efficiency, and also automation is what you know is what people are all gung ho about. So being able to you know have that digital encrypted ledger uh, with with sequential timestamp data makes it a perfect fit for a lot of Wall Street firms. Right. So what coin do I buy? <laughs> so Tom Farley, the former president of the New York Stock Exchange, said, quote, blockchain technology is going to rewire all financial services, end quote. So they keep saying that, and I understand how, because think about how many people in the asset management world are engaged in, like, 
matching trades and that's what banks are, right? I send my money from my bank to your bank. Bank of America has to talk to Chase. Okay, does he have the funds? Does he have the funds? If this is all just open source and distributed, they could just be like, boom. No, it's, Dude, it's over. the whole DTC system. Like, think about how much paper is being pushed that if we're trustless or we're database that was open to everyone, it were just a ledger, you probably could save a lot of money. And if you're Vanguard, that's what you're thinking about. It's like, how will the blockchain save us money? Not how do we speculate in coins. And and does SWIFT go away, right? I mean, like SWIFT system was created, what, in like the 1970s with the global banking efforts that were dominated by, you know, developing nations. You know, like does blockchain replace, you know, re- yeah. you know replace all of, all of SWIFT and, and, you know, blockchain addressing the account and payment, you know, payment speed, KYC, AML, security, traceability, um, and just knowing what transparency, kind of where funds are going. And being able to profit, process more transactions and and scale and speed. So freezing, you know, I, I feel like it frees up capital flow for, for all markets. Right. I, and I think the best part is the end user doesn't know the difference. Hey, did Nvidia report <laughs> earnings this morning? The end client doesn't really care. Was Nvidia this morning? Uh, last night. Last night. Yeah. That's a big update today. Uh, it opened it it opened down and closed up. So typically something that you want to say. Oh. Uh, what else? Somewhere. What else are we doing? Oh, so uh, Gary Gensler's op-ed about treating crypto like the rest of the capital markets. He's basically doubling down on this idea that like a lot of these things are securities and the laws are already written. What's so complicated? Um, come in and talk to us. And then like Mark Cuban went absolutely crazy on Twitter. You see? <laughs> did you see this? Yeah. <laughs> no. He went crazy on Twitter. He's basically like bullshit. What, what do you mean coming and talk to us? Who do we meet with? Who do we talk to? <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's a great strategy, but uh, I guess like the the real issue is people just want it spelled out because they're terrified that they're going to build something that's crypto related and they're going to be used as a test case in a court somewhere. And there's already versions of that. So I I I'm sympathetic to the fact that a lot of these things basically are securities. I actually agree with that. Uh, so tell people specifically, this is a security. This is not a security. What do you, what do you think about what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, but but the thing, but he didn't really get into that that much. I agree with you. There needs to be the laws need to be made more clear to the companies. I don't think a lot of the companies like are tr- are intentionally trying to dodge the SEC. I know some are, but for a lot that are trying to do the right thing, the laws. I don't know. I don't know. But here's here. Let me just quote Gensler because I don't want to speculate on what the companies would say or wouldn't say. He said, we can dispense with the idea that crypto lending isn't subject to regulation. On the contrary, the rules have never been around for decades. I'm sorry, have been around for decades. The platforms platforms aren't following them. Noncompliance isn't the inevitable result of the crypto business model or underlying crypto technology. Rather, it is as if these platforms are saying they have a choice or even worse saying, catch us if you can, end quote. So Gensler is saying that what I just said was completely false, that the rules are clear and these companies are in fact trying to avoid them. Well, what you'll keep hearing them say is we want rules. But he's saying that they that they exist. Yeah. So I don't I don't I also think that there's like like there's like the issue of like only a handful of companies can afford the amount of lawyers and legal firepower that you need to even like have the to even have these discussions. And so it's it's almost like if the rules aren't in writing in such a way that everyone can understand them, then some people are gonna accidentally fall on the wrong side. I don't know, on the wrong side of this. But I I don't think this stuff is simple because um, of how new some of these concepts are. 
Like, what do you do with a DAO, for example? Like, what do we say that is? It's people, nobody runs it, but the users all run it. Is it a comp, is it a corporation? Is it a, is it a, is the coin equivalent to a stock certificate? I don't really know uh, exactly what to do with that, but like those issues seem like they need more, they need, they need more detail if we're going to say, okay, we regulate this now as a security. So there was, there was uh, a lot of news in crypto last week when they shut down Tornado Cash, which not having, not really knowing much about this, like to me that, that was clearly being used by bad actors. What is, what is Tornado Cash? Tornado Cash, as I understand it, is a way for you to put crypto into this algorithm that like makes you completely untraceable and it spits it back and you get, you. it, it sounds like you're watching your money. Okay. How much Tornado Cash do you currently hold? This is the first time I'm hearing about Tornado okay. Cash. Same. No, uh, it's an app. It's not. It's not like a. It's not a thing that you. Oh, hold. it's not a thing. It's just a. It's, it's a, a way to. It's a way to. Using. In my words, wash your crypto. And what's we don't like that? It's not good. Clean crypto. I thought. I thought that's what we we're going for. <laughs> hey, let me interrupt. Breaking news. This is not breaking, but it's breaking for me. I had Nick Majuli run this number. These numbers for me. I was curious, which stocks have done the best and worst since the bottom in March 2020. And these names are well below. These are the worst names. So Teladoc, for example, is 70% today. Teladoc is 70% lower than the bottom in March 2020. So wait, say that one more time. Teladoc it's is what? 70% lower today than the bottom in March 2020. If these numbers are to be believed, which I think they are. So for example, the March 2020 love for Teladoc was 116 bucks a share. Okay. It's $34 today. Some other losers. Ring Central down 67%. Again, these are relative to each of their March 2020 lows. Warner Brothers, 30 almost 30% below. Peloton, obviously, 45% below. Zoom Video, 20% below their March 2020 lows. Netflix, 22% below. If you were talk if you were talking to investors about like a strategy that overweights growth and companies that are, I guess quote unquote innovative, you had it would have had a very receptive audience, but it didn't take long for that whole thing to Oh my God, look at that. Yeah. That I'm looking at the chart of Ring Central. That March 2020 low is so cute. But, you see that? Yeah. So the March 2020 <laughs> low was 150. It's now 45. It was a it was a $450 stock. But if you were selling this story, how easy would it have been to just like everyone you talked to would have been like, I'm in. I'm in. And Teladoc was the easiest one to sell. Yeah. Like this is not, I, and I, I'm bullish on like uh, not in-person medical visits. I'm bullish on that space in general. Maybe not the companies, but I think that is going to be a lot bigger in five years than it is today. Yeah, but you, right. So, so if you're telling that story, like all of these companies have had a huge speed up in the adoption curve for their technologies, it would have made so much sense. Every one of these stocks looks like a bomb hit. They had an incredible run up in. I, I'm a fun flow guy, right? So it's like looking at stock specifics Same. Is, Love is, fun flows. <laughs> is, is, is fine. But I start looking at, okay, well, huh, you start looking at like ARC, right? And you, and you look at 2019 at $6.6 .6 billion for the flagship portfolio. All of a sudden, fast forward to you, that fifty billion dollars <laughs> yeah. with their innovation fund, and you're going right? to run the same strategy. And you're just you're just sitting there, you're scratching your head, and you're just like, you know what? There could be a bubble here. You know, like I don't I don't know from a stock specific standpoint, but maybe you know, but maybe this is time. Maybe valuations are, are a little stretched. Right? Is that the craziest thing you've ever seen? Uh, a, a manager to just like completely come out of nowhere like that? 
six funds that go up 100% a year. And I was long. Um, and you know what? I've never seen anything like I've never seen. I know they partnered with Resolute Investment Managers and for some distribution force, but to go from 6.6 .6 to 50 in a year is is, is just unheard And of. she did it mostly herself. I don't know what kind of distribution on the ETF, how that even, like, that distribution on the ETF is not as effective as that distribution sold, in a, that in sold a fund, it, right? It sold itself. And she, and she did a you know, she did great job Twitter. marketing, Twitter. Um, but, you know, but yeah, there was a distribution force behind it. Um, for the oh, there was. Yeah, okay. the, uh, you know, Res Resolute um, was, you know, was behind it. They have a, you know, wholesaler force and they were pumping it. But you know, but being able to get on the models and everything, and but once again, going going from you know going from six six point six to fifty, you know, looking at like years ago, I remember when everyone was talking emerging markets, and you look at Oppenheimer's developing market going up to forty billion dollars, right? And there's a direct correlation between fund flows and performance when it comes down when it comes to asset bloat, yeah. Right, and his story is as old as time, right? Especially looked, with yeah, I, yeah, you just look yeah. at it. Okay, this is just, yeah. This sector's going yeah. down. But what's so funny is a year before Kathy Wood's emergence, we were talking about there might never be another active manager again. Mm. Like the, we were talking about like <laughs> indexing is about to be 70% of the stock market. And then all of a sudden you have the wildest active manager story like in, in 25 years, let's say. All right, let me give you the flip side, the, the biggest winners. Wait, these are the biggest winners from- From their March 2020 low. From the pandemic lockdown low. low. Yeah. All right, go. Antera Resources. Moderna. Antera Resources, 5,800%. Holy shit. GameStop, 3,500%. Well, that one's driven by fundamentals. We understand. <laughs> What's Aventive? OVV, I don't know that one. 2,300%. Avis, 2,200%. And then the rest are all energy. Range Resources, Targa, PDC, Devon, Enphase- uh, those are all up 1,100% or more. Tesla's up 1,100%. Plug Power, 975. Alcoa, Continental Resources, Apache, Mosaic, Diamondback. It's all energy. Uh, what? Why do you think- And materials, huh? Yeah, I so I, I, I just, I think it's amazing how quickly things changed because in that March 2020 or April 2020 period, when oil was going to zero, if you would have told me Dude, in two months, in two years, we're going to look back and the whole list of the top performing stocks will be dominated by oil. It's almost all energy materials. Actually, the only two. I would have looked at you like you were. I would have bet on of anything course. else. Cleveland Avis. Cliffs. The big ones. Yeah, oh, Avis. Oh, this this stands out. LPL. That's interesting. The big ones. The big growth stocks that are on this list. So Tesla, as I mentioned, is top ten. Tesla's its own ball of wax, right? That's eleven hundred percent. The Trade Desk which I would put in that high-flying Kathy Wood-type basket, the trade desk is up 355%. Still, even after getting killed. Uh, did it get killed? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cloudflare, Palo Alto Networks. But it's all, it's all energy materials. What do you think of this? Speaking of Tesla, what do you think of the single-stock ETFs? Are you amazed that they, like, approve that and they're going to— I can't believe it. Right. Yeah. I mean, could I, I? I never would have thought it would have would have got approval, especially as especially as long as it took to to get the um, semi transparent active ETFs approved, which was like what seven or eight years yeah. worth of uh, attempt. Yeah, it took a while. I mean, I I was very fortunate to um, be at American Century when we came when we were first to market there, um, but it took it took a long time. It took um, a lot of a lot of education going back and forth. Um, different baskets being approved. Uh, How does the semi-transparent ETF work? They they don't give you 20, like they don't update every 24 hours the holdings. They give the manager time to accumulate stocks. Co yeah, correct. Because okay. you don't want you to avoid front running. So that was the whole, that was the whole thing behind it. How do you, right. how do you, how do you have a, 
how do you have an ETF without the potential front running if from, a, you know, from an active management standpoint? So a lot of people were saying that defeats the whole purpose of the ETF because uh, there's no transparency. Yeah. So now it's like, so now it's like, well, why, you know, why invest in a mutual fund when, you know, you could have the ETF wrapper it, with all like the tax yeah. efficiency and transparency still. And so um, we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens next from a product perspective. But yeah, from a single stock ETF, I was very surprised to see that. Remember those ant things that were called ants? Yeah, Am I making that those? up? What? No, I know. Is that a thing? I know what you're talking about, but I don't think it was called that. Was it an ant ETF? No, but like sometimes transparency doesn't work in the investor's favor because if you get a popular manager running an actively managed ETF and it's clear that they're trying to build a position and other people are jumping in front of their trades because oh, they know. Active non-transparent. Active non-transparent, That's what it yeah. for. Remember oh, those? It's called an ant? Yeah. That was a thing in like 2017, 16, 18. I don't know. Did any of them ever take off? Okay. The it says the biggest one according to etfdb.com the biggest one is uh oh that's interesting is simplify. Uh we've spoken to them before. Um good dudes. They've got a uh, 457 million dollars in this one. Fidelity's got one, T-Row has one. I But it'll, it'll, it'll come. I mean, look at the entire ETF market and 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 look at the um the active semi-transparent, the active and a semi-transparent space out punching their weight class, right? They're, they're taking up close to 10% market share, um, which is 500 basis points larger than expected, right? So, I mean, it's it's coming, and, and a lot of the bigger asset managers are are, are figuring that out, right? And Do you think most mutual funds are going to have an ETF version or even convert in the I know how slow that process is, but is that what you think? Yeah, you're starting you're, you're, you're starting to see that now, right? With with complements being able to be pro, be vehicle agnostic. Yeah, and and I think you'll continue to see that. I mean, the mutual funds will never die because it's it's they're in the four one k plans. Yeah. But if you're you know, but if you're let's say an advisor like yourself, and you're like, okay, I could save thirty bips um, and help out from you know help my clients out from a from a tax perspective. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go this route. Right? Yeah, and be able to trade it, you know, be able to trade it freely. There's like, so yeah. much hesitance at some large asset managers to do that, even though it seems so obvious to everyone else. Um, and now the ones that were most hesitant are the most gung ho because they have to play catch. But up. on the active side, it makes especially more sense for obvious reasons. Makes sense. And I, I remember when Vanguard came with, came out with an active uh, an active ultra short and raised a billion dollars in, in under sixty days. Right? <laughs> I was like, oh my, like what's going on over here? So yeah, there's there's definitely there's, there's definitely appetite for it from economies of scale perspective. That's kind of where a lot of the pushback is, and that's why a lot of managers chose not to go the SMA route as well because they want you know they they want the fees so, from a mutual fund. So I want I want to pivot and talk about what you are doing because when I first <clears throat> saw it, I said. I, I can't believe nobody's really thought of this before, and I couldn't believe how far along you were without my having heard of it. It's not that you were like running, like building this in stealth, but like I was like, wow, there's like a lot going on here already. So tell us about DFD. What are you building, and what problem is it uh, meant to address? The same, the same problem that we've been talking about, right? So DFD Partners is an AI-based distribution platform for asset managers, right? So we're able to leverage data, we're able to leverage automation, we're able to leverage AI ML to match asset managers that have a product fit with an investor base, uh, whether it's registered investment advisors, wealth managers with the product need. Okay. Right. And we kind of talked a little bit about this from a perspective of let's talk about the larger asset managers. 20 asset managers control almost 50% of all the flows. Yeah. You take you you, you extrapolate that so out. BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, everyone Fidelity, that American funds, yeah, yeah. right? 
and from and from a retail perspective, between BlackRock and Vanguard, they're getting close to sixty two cents of every single dollar that comes yeah. in the market, right? Wow. So if you're a diverse asset manager, you're a smaller asset manager, you have a hell of an uphill battle, right? Yeah. So you're looking at a space in the REA market specifically that's supposed to grow to $230 trillion by 2030, and you're looking at 71% of alternative managers that are now looking at advisor-led um, strategy as a solution. Well, how do you penetrate that market if all the flows are going to the same managers? Okay. How do you right? get discovered? How do, like, how do people find out that you have a solution for what they're trying it, to invest? Exactly. In? So we're so so we are the only company, and hopefully we can get some pretty good news here soon with the with the patent that we filed. That we're the only company and that could leverage the data the way we do, and not just paid data with like your pitch books and your Fintrix and your RA database and your Dakotas of the world, but we're actually able to get a full barometer of you as a as a as an allocator, as a as an RIA, not just from what you're doing with your ADVs and your 13Fs and you know and your market metrics of the world, but we're actually able to take your engagement on Twitter and on TikTok and on LinkedIn. So in other right? words, you are looking at me, let's say I'm an asset manager. So let's say I, I started up a, a strategy, I'm building a company, I have I don't know, $300 million under management. I have a research team that's active on social. And I'm just like, how do I go from 300 million to 3 billion? Like, what is the route so the, to get there? Right, so, the, so your platform is vetting me um, in a variety of ways and then turning that insight over to potential investors. So I'm, take, I'm taking you as the asset manager, Ryan. We're creating a profile, right? And then we have data on 730,000 financial advisors, 20,000 single-family, multifamily offices, and then we're, we're cross-referencing that with their ADVs and their and their Form 13Fs, and we're getting a picture of who they are outside of their day-to-day, -day, right, with their engagement on Twitter and LinkedIn. And, and this is automated? And, and, and Reddit, and then we have automation overlay to it. Right? Okay. Right. So, so, it, so, for instance, we're able to take that data. Um, and most recently, we had a we had a webinar with a you know really kick ass manager named Katie Stockton. Um, you know Katie. We you know we did a webinar for her, and out of that, the data you know we it, it, we led us to a thousand advisors to reach out to. Out of the thousand, we had six hundred and thirty that registered for the for the webinar. That's out of, incredible. Out of that, we had three hundred and eighty two active participants on that webinar. Out of that three hundred eighty two, we had a ten percent engagement on meetings, right? So we had 38 meetings on that and, and, over, and over 15 Dude. million in committed capital, right? How so, else would Katie Stockton, I mean, she's amazing. She's, you know, she does TV, she writes, she writes research, she speaks publicly, but like how else would she get 600 people paying attention all at once. So that's so, so that's what I'm solving for. Solving for tremendous minds, right? Tremendous fund managers, tremendous portfolio managers that don't necessarily have the tools, resources, or headcount to effectively scale their business, right? Yeah. Same thing with Channing Capital. Like Channing Channing is a, a great manager out of Chicago. They've see, they've quietly built a four billion dollar asset management arm, right? And they have ninety percent of their flow, ninety percent of their assets are in small cap. But then you start looking at the numbers. Wow, they have a very strong, developed, uh, and emerging uh, team, right? They also have a very strong large cap value team. Looking at looking at firms like Brown, you know, like Eddie Brown is a legend, right? Now, should Brown Capital be eighteen billion? Probably not. It should probably be right around forty. But if you look at the underlying, not having the distribution force, not being able to really scale to the 
you know, 200,000 RAAs out there, right, to get the messaging out. And that's what we're solving for, and we're doing that with technology. So it's a two-way platform. You're serving, you're serving both sides. You're serving the asset management industry because BlackRock doesn't need you, you but know. all of these all of these asset managers that are smaller than they otherwise would be if they had better distribution, they they love the spotlight that you're shining on them. And then you're serving the other side of the platform, which is the end user, RIAs, family offices. They're looking for people that can fit slots in their asset allocation. So right. So and, and if you look from a like if you're you know if you're an advisor and you're showing your client the same old cookie cutter, hey, here's your yeah portfolio. And, and, here's and maybe your spider. Here's your triple Q. Right, here's your right. IWM small right. cap. Right. And th- and then there was a you know there was a study by you know by by the Knight Foundation right and and they said that diverse fund managers have a ten times harder time raising capital. And then what they did was they allocated a portion of, of a portfolio to diverse managers right. And the end result was performance was the same. Right. Right. So performance was the same and in some cases better. So it didn't cost them anything to allocate to someone who's a non middle aged white guy like they they were able to still manage the portfolio, but have someone else have a crack at, you know, uh, that piece of the allocation. Right. So I want to John, can you cue this up? All right. I want to play. I want to play your hype video. All right. All right. Let's do Let's do this. Hey, I'm a 16-year Wall Street senior executive. I've worked at over $12 trillion worth of organizations. I speak the language not only for my clients, which is asset managers, but they're in clients, which are the wealth managers. And within that, I've raised over $30 billion for my organizations. There is no one that is more capable of putting together an organization to disrupt the $100 trillion industry than me with DFD Partners. Where I'm from, a lot of folks chose football, basketball. For me, actually going into finance was kind of going in the opposite way, road less traveled. Looking like we do in, in finance, you know, you have to have tough skin. You have to be able to take the ebbs and flows of the industry, but you also have to be a constant professional and consistently raise the bar. And I think back to where I was in my office and seeing the video of George Floyd and seeing his life taken from him. And I look back at, you know, my 16 years and 16 years, I've not gotten one person that looks like me hired in the industry. I really had to take a step back and say, well, what is my impact? Like, yeah, I've been deemed as relatively successful, but what's going to be my legacy? And that's when I got to work. That's when I put pen to paper and started going to work on DFD Partners. Being raised by a single mother who is, is from an inner city in New Jersey and seeing her not take any mess from anyone, drive us from Jersey to Brooklyn every day just to go to school, late nights, early mornings, traveling all around the world to be able to provide me a better life. You know, not only do I owe it to her, but I owe it to, to my community where I'm from to be able to scale this thing up to be a major success. It is my responsibility that the next generation of, of potential financial professionals are able to see me and use me as that same barometer that I saw from, you know, from, my, from my friends and my network early on. And that's what we're standing for at DFD. Yo, I'm saying. You're doing, <laughs> but you're doing the thing. Trying to. So, all right. So how does this platform help to, uh, help to unearth new uh, asset managers who happen to either be companies that people of color are running or uh, people that wouldn't otherwise get the meeting or wouldn't get the like the request for proposal when that goes out? Like, how are you actually doing that? Right. So 
man, it's a lot, right? So it's a lot of marketing myself, um, being able to identify these managers. I work with consultants as well. Um, consultants that were able to feed me a list of, of folks that might fit the parameter for what I'm looking for because everyone needs distribution, right? And no matter how smart of a portfolio manager you are, if you're, you know, I was talking to a small cap manager last week who has top 1% percentile numbers, one, three, five, under $100 million, right? Wow. Because it's just not able to meet the AUM threshold, um, you know, to get into these pensions, to these endowments, to these foundations, and definitely not to, you know, the private wealth, private wealth management business, right? Yeah. So being able to, you know, so, so being able to take top quality institutional managers and then take them to Schwab or take them to Fidelity or take them to Morgan, take them to Merrill, um, to at least start the process to get on the platform. Um, and then also speaking directly to independent RAAs like yourself, say, hey, man, you, you know, like here's, here's, you know, here's the platform and here's the managers that we have on there. You should, you know, you should take a look at some of these managers. What is the biggest, what is the biggest hurdle for you? Is it driving more awareness that you even exist? Or is it more like, okay, that's great and all, but we're already on five other platforms and like, we're, we're good for now. Like, what do you, what do you fight against the most? So everyone wants, everyone wants to scale, right? So everyone sees initially the value of, of, of what we're doing. Meaning the asset, the asset managers, the asset managers, the asset managers see the value, of what we're doing. The biggest obstacle is once we're able to leverage the technology, we're able to, you know, we're able to get these leads, we're able to do the webinars. Then it's like, oh shoot, I just realized we don't, we still don't have the manpower to reach Follow out to Follow up people, on all this right? or, yeah, yeah. yeah. The good news is I offer an upgraded package, right, that that has that ability, but that's the, you know, that was the, that was the initial, like, okay, you know, there's 500 people to follow up with. This might take me a year. Yeah. Right? So that was the initial, um, you know, from a, you know, from a um, barrier standpoint, that was, that was the one okay. that I discovered earlier. But on. at this point now, uh, you can, you can go to any asset manager and be like, we're going to throw an event I'm going to flood it with people that are going to want to hear your story and how you manage money. And then we're going to run down all the, the people that want follow-ups and you could do, you could deliver that. So now we have a leg to stand on, right? Yeah. So now we, now we have, you know, now we have three webinars under, under our belt. We're able to, you know, we're able to raise, raise assets. We are able to have an allocate, an allocator um, base of $45 billion, right? We're able to have managers at, you know, just under $12 billion with an additional $150 billion in the pipeline. Right. So now, so now it's like, okay, we're able to, pr we've been able to prove out this concept. Yeah. So if you want to scale, let's go. I love this. Right? Uh, well, we have a lot of people that run asset management firms that I'm sure would love to talk to you uh, after hearing this. Um, before we get into favorites, uh, I want to do, I want to do this thing on muni bond yields. So I, th I think this is like, uh, I think this, like people are like, well, what's changed this year? To me, this is something that's changed. If, first of all, sell a lot of muni bond funds in your time or mostly on the equity side? Uh, muni, muni bonds as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so muni bond yields now 2.79% nominal. So if you're in California in a high tax bracket, that could be 5.75%, almost 6%. Why would you do anything else? Uh, even higher in New York. So for me, if you're in a volatile stock market, that seems like the fattest pitch on, uh, in the investment markets right now. Uh, tax revenues are through the roof everywhere. They're having a windfall in tax collection, uh, the states and local governments. So you're not really worrying about funding. 
at this point, in, in with with a few exceptions. Uh, where's the hole in my story? What do you think? I don't think there's any hole in the story. In fact, that's why you're seeing firms like Mainstay and, or I'm sorry, it's called New York Life now, and yeah. firms like Nuveen um, able to just crush it in years like this with their muni products and their high yield muni products, especially in New York City, right? You're seeing, you know, sales professionals in, in New York City just sell this and, you know, raise billions of dollars a year just you know, yeah. selling muni strategies. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, stock market historically is uh, eight, eight to 10%. How about 6%, almost no risk, a little bit of interest rate risk, and uh, maybe we'll throw a little leverage on it. Maybe we'll get you to maybe, maybe we'll get you up to that eight percent with a with a closed end muni fund or right, something. Right. Yeah. Get a get an LP based. Get you know, an LP. Yeah. All right. So for me, this I don't know. What what do you, what do you think about this idea? Well, I have some money in uh, New York municipal bonds. I'm just going to a chart of NYF is the one that I have because that's the New York one. Um, leverage or no? No. Total assets under management. Uh, basically at an all-time high. Yeah. And and totally understandable in this environment. I think MUB is the big national one. Let's see. I, I assume it's the same there. Yep. Same there too. Okay. So look at that spike at the end of- uh, That's what you're talking year. about. They're crushing it with this Muni product. That yeah. spike right there. So I look, I, I could envision a scenario where that goes on through the through the end of this year, almost regardless of what the stock market does. So especially, but if you have- most Wall Street strategists, like the bullish ones, their their year end targets like forty eight hundred, which is where we started the mm-hmm. S and P. If you have a year that's flat in the S and P, I could see a lot of money coming into muni bonds next year, because, and, and by the way, this is how like multiple compression happens. It doesn't happen because everyone agrees that stocks should be valued less. It's that there's competition for stock money now, and this is one form of. You and know, by the way, if you look at like I'm looking at here a chart of AGG. So you're seeing like a lot of money outflows of, of bond funds. It was like 24, Nobody wants to own 24 straight weeks of outflows. I don't think like AGG that. Has, that, has that much in treasuries though, right? What, AGG? Yeah, it's a total AGG, bond market. It's mostly treasuries. It's like 40, it's like 45% treasuries. I thought it was, whatever, it's a lot. Okay. But I, could be, yeah, I could be wrong. It's a yeah. lot. I think it's all investment grade. All in, it okay. is. That, okay. that is a fact. So it's treasury, right, it's treasuries, but it's also a lot of investment grade, investment grade corporate agency. Right, yeah. I, th- I think this is going to continue. It's not that rates are so great right now, but if you can get to that threshold, I think, of 5.5% or above, that just makes it such an attractive move we for already wealthy people. We are in a weird world where we're talking about a fat pitch at something that's offering negative real returns. Oh, well, it, you, you have to not think that you're going to have 9% inflation <laughs> next know. year also. Like, <laughs> I yeah, do, I do. You got to believe, Michael. I believe, I believe. Uh, all right. So so now is the now is the point... Uh, in the show where we do favorites and basically uh, Devon like anything you're reading watching I know you're on constant uh, air, uh, airplane travel so you must have a, a few tricks up your sleeve to get through all the flying yeah so um, I'm intimately into my business right so I really like things I read on fun flows and, yeah. and different you know asset management publications and the fensums of the world um, as far you know as far as watching I what's your go well, what's your go-to for that stuff like what what are your What are your most important information sources for what you do? So um, I've probably watched a good amount of your your podcast, which is which has been been very helpful. Awesome. Um. So so congratulations to you guys. Uh, I read a lot of read a lot of Finsome, a lot of you know a lot of Bloomberg, um. Just to you know just to keep me up to date uh, with you know what's going on in the in the marketplace and hopefully soon DF you know DFD.ai where we're yeah. able to. Do what do you is that shaking. is that live yet? So my MVP is live, yeah. So you can go on, you could um, you could create a profile, um, but my version two is really is really going to be some. Special. When is version two come out? Uh, end of Q two. 
Okay. And then you're going to want to make the Q, Q3. Yeah. Q th- end of end uh, of this quarter? Next quarter. Next end, quarter. End of next quarter. Okay. So you're going to want to make a lot of noise when this thing comes out. Yeah. So yeah. So you know you know how it is with MVP, right? You get you get it out. You get to, you know you get the users up uh, just just enough. I'm, I'm going to um, demo my version two at Future Proof. That's right. So we're you know very very excited about that. Um, and then hired a head in, head of engineer to to code it all out and and uh, and a CTO and to manage the team and and they're working uh, they're working overtime just like I am. And you got a lot of press releases in your future. Money be, money being raised. People joining the platform. You're yeah. gonna have like a lot of news to to release in the coming months. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple couple larger asset managers that are you know hopefully we're in you know final innings with our you know you know with our uh, with our conversations and should be some some good press and and not only good press but also some initiatives behind it that we're we're pretty excited to come. come it's out a little with. bit like uh, it's a little bit like a snowball. Like when you get a certain amount, then everyone's just in because it becomes a standard thing. Mm-hmm. How far away are you from that? Man, I'm 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 betting on 2023 being a really big year for us. Okay, yeah. love this. You know whose podcast you should be on? Uh, you should go on Trillions. Um, Eric Balchunas. Okay, I feel like he's so it's a, it's not really an ETF podcast it's like anymore. Industry is it? stuff. It's it's but it's asset management industry mm-hmm. stuff. We'll give you a whole, we'll give you a whole yeah list. no we'll lo- yeah we'd love to love to have Va- a conversation. Dude, very excited for you. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Uh, all right, so what do you what, so how are you getting through these flights? What else are you reading or listening to or watching? So I had to run back um, House of Lies, mm. House of Cards, yeah, House of Cards. I like them both. Okay, um, but but yeah, I had to had to run that back. I know the new season is is coming out in November. Yeah, um, had to run that back, and then just getting into Game of Thrones, um, House of the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. so I'm. What did uh, you think of the first one? So I think I think there was a lot of nuggets that you know that that kind of brought you back to you know brought you, brought you back to, to to Game of Thrones, which was you know which was really cool. So I'm super excited for Sunday, and you know if I'm not on the plane, I'll be I'll be watching that. Yo, they did a they did a lot to connect this to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, why wouldn't you? Right, it's one of the biggest smash hit shows ever. Mm-hmm. But like even with the music cues, and what else did they do? There were like five things that I was like, oh look, they're reminding me that I already like this. I stopped watching Game of Thrones. Oh, so you, yeah. Well, a lot of I I don't think a lot of people did, but a lot of people hated the last, the last season. Put a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, you didn't like when there was a Poland spring bottle no, on you, the table. Was that? Oh, they did that. Yeah. yeah. That. <laughs> what happened with me was I wasn't paying attention, and so in th- season three or four, I'm like, wait a minute, I have no idea who. Oh, any you gotta, can- so then you got to run that. Button. I can't. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm not watching seven episodes, seven seasons of that. But anyway, I'm, I'm what, House of the Dragon was amazing. I thought Duncan House of the Dragon. Are you in? I I've never watched a single episode of of. Any of this? Okay, so so you have a lot. You have, I have a lot of catching up. You have about a decade's worth of shows. You have about a decade's worth of shows to catch up on. Uh, what's Brewery Four Two Four? It's my, the shirt that I'm wearing today. All right. So what is this all if, about? It, I'll is tell this you. Guy paying you? No. Okay. Great. Uh, he's paying me in beer. Say more. He sent me beers <laughs> yesterday. So this is the fan of Animal Spirits. He's uh, if you if you drink IPAs, Brewery Four Two Four. Okay, but why is it good? Dot com. Cause I don't know the taste, the hops. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> this gentleman sent me beer, and I just want to pay it forward. Dude, you are opening the. F- you don't even understand what you're opening no, the floodgates for. I know. Oh, you do now. Do you want to share your address? This, this for reminds, yeah, why don't you just this, give you? This reminded me 
Howard Stern fans will remember when Ronnie Mund got sent something and he gave a plug on the air. That's the worst thing you And Howard's like, you gave a commercial. I'm not doing this ever again. I like this guy. Yeah. yeah. He's a fan. I like him. All right, do not send Michael random bottles of beer, please. He's I'll take him, but you're not getting We're on not, the air. I will not you're allow- You're not getting on the air. I will not allow him to do this week after week. All right. This is a one-time thing. Leave me alone. One time. Uh, all right. My favorite is House of the Dragon Tale. Listen, I, I, uh, I feel like I need like five more TV shows, though. Because then it ended, and I don't have anything else to watch. Are you, okay, industry. Yeah, I got to do that. What else? Um, I saw the first episode of Rehearsal. Have you guys heard about this? No, what is it? Um, it's the most bizarre show I've ever seen in my life. It's on HBO. It's this guy Nathan Felder who had a show. What was that show called, John? Oh, I know who that Nathan is. For you, Nathan. For you. So the premise, as I understand it, it's so fucking weird. This guy meets people. And they're going through some sort of event in their life. And he practices with them what, how it's going to go down. If you've got to get something off your chest, you're in an awkward situation at work, a personal, whatever, he literally rehearses with you what you're going to say to the point that, like, I only saw one episode, but they rebuilt the place where he's going to deliver this message. And it is just the most peculiar. Uh, you have a confrontation coming up with, like, a family member or something. Yes, it is. He'll let you play it out yes, first. Yes, it is so bizarre. I'm staring at him like, what the hell is this? But you're into it? Not really. Okay. But so, I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna so watch. So everyone more. tune in to <laughs> Michael's least new favorite, uh, uh, new least favorite show. You finished Blackbird? Yeah, it was great. Blackbird was, was great. I was all, I was all in. So I'm running out of shit. I don't, I don't have anything. Uh, all right. Well, listen, we're going to make sure everyone knows how to follow you, uh, Devon. So where do you want them to go? Are you? You're a LinkedIn guy. You're a Twitter guy. What, yeah, all, your... you know all the above. I'm um, at DFD Partners on all on all social platforms. Okay, and what's the plat? What's the platform URL? One more time. DFD.ai. DFD.ai. And so, if you're an end potential end user, you're an investor looking for new managers, sign up. Or if you're an asset manager looking for help with distribution, sign up. Correct. So you're both you're both ways, and you could help both both groups. Correct. Very cool, man. Very, very happy to see it. Wishing you all the best luck. You'll come back when you're when the platform 10x's. For sure. Yeah. yeah. All we'll, right. We'll do it. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do a remote somewhere in Miami or something. Yeah, maybe. Duncan has his hand up. What? What do you got? We we have a review. This oh, week. it right, better be funnier. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this one's don't from, stress me out. Okay. This one's from Walk on Wonder eighty nine. Uh, dream, dream happy hour setup is the title of this review. Okay. I would say this is the best financial podcast out there and a dream happy hour setup. I've learned a ton and it helps keep me grounded in my investing plan and helps block out the noise. My only critique. Here we go. Is let's, that, see, let's hear it. Is that it's yeah, too. Yeah, no, all right, we're about no, out of time. No, no, I like critiques. <laughs> no, let's hear it. Let's hear it. My only critique is that it's too professional. I wish a few whiskeys were drank no, during the pod <laughs> so I could hear heavier Long Island accents and hear Tim Dillon like sales stories. He wants to hear me start slurring and I haven't tell you about the time. <laughs> No, that's not. Thank what, you for the review. Thank you for the review. We're definitely not going in that direction. If anything, we're going to get more professional. Leave us uh, a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave us. Well, right. The whole purpose of us spotlighting that review is to remind you that if you love the show, reviewing the show is the best way to tell us, and it will help more people discover the Compounded Friends. So it serves two purposes. So please leave us mad reviews on Apple. Like you could leave one every day. We won't get mad, right? Can you review a show more than once? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, just I'll be on the safe side. Make this part of your daily routine. Just a new, <laughs> <laughs> a new five-star routine. All right. Uh, shout out to Devon. Great job, John, Duncan, Nicole. Killed it this week. Michael, you were terrific today. 
Uh, I think I was pretty good. Shout out to all the listeners, all the subscribers, uh, all the fans. We love you guys. We will be back with a brand new episode next week. Take us out. Alex, that was the warm-up. You ready to really do this? Let's do it. We're going to turn on all the cameras now. Let's do it, man. Is that fun? No, it was fun, man. Yeah. It was good. My first podcast. All right, yeah.